This sermon was preached at University Park Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. For more information about UPBC, visit upbchouston.org. If you're going to stay in with us, let me invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 31. Genesis 31, the first book of the Bible. And we have some Bibles that are available on the side little boxes here. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to grab one of those. Those have been freshly replenished. You'll find Genesis 31 on page 23 of those Bibles. So I looked ahead. Page 23. Michael Jordan, that's how I remembered it. Leslie. Let me also encourage you in another one brief thing. Tonight at prayer meeting, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to have a conversation with Lou Marcos and Bobby Matthew about leading an evangelistic Bible study out of your home. And so if you're interested in learning about that, maybe praying about doing that, uh, let me encourage you to come at 5 o'clock. That'll be our topic tonight. And then we'll end our time with prayer, just praying that God would uh, bless our church as we share the gospel with our community and our neighbors. Let's pray before we look to God's word together this morning. Lord, we love you and thank you so much for your great love for us. We thank you for your word and the way that it is steady and true and always relevant to our lives. And we pray that if there's a dullness in us toward it, a lack of expectation when we read it or sit and have it opened in a sermon or in a Bible study, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to repent. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through your word and that it would do the work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning that I certainly can't do. Lord, we pray you would show us yourself. We pray that you would change us. Help us to be faithful. Lord, give us grace to serve you with gladness. Teach us as we look to the life of of Jacob and his family that is so dysfunctional, Lord, that you can do so much through a messy, broken situation. Give us hope in that, we pray. So we ask that you would come and help us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There are copies of a sermon card in the back, on the back table, or in the front entryway. When you walk in, you can pick it up and see an outline for uh, the way that we're preaching through Genesis. And uh, I would encourage you to use it as a prayer guide for the preaching of God's Word. Um, You'll notice we are taking about a chapter a week. And uh, we're just walking through it that way. Uh, we, that may strike you as overkill. Um, maybe there's more pressing things that we should be talking about today. Um, I mean, we started the third installment of this sermon series through this book back in January, and we won't finish until mid-November, Lord willing. Why do we do it this way? And my short answer is this. The Bible is amazing. The Bible is amazing, and we, I, underestimate how amazing it is. But we need God's help to see it and to see it all. After a week of prayer and study, 
I've come to realize after doing this for year upon year upon year that I almost never, well, I never, I definitely never see it all. I never catch it all. It is that rich and beautiful. And so I just hope that you have that heart posture when we come this morning to give ourselves to it and we, we open our Bibles or when you wake up in the morning and you're at your own home that you would be drawn to open it and to read it with that kind of expectation. The Bible is amazing because God is amazing. And his word is amazing. Every aspect of God is amazing and wonderful. And the Bible just helps us to see him for who he is. And so I pray, and I have been praying, that's what would happen this morning. As we come to the middle of this story of of Jacob, this patriarch, I want to catch you up kind of to where we are, but maybe in a little bit different way than usual. We've been seeing a lot of deception and cunning and stealing and, and slavery and manipulation But Moses, I think, also wants us to see a bigger picture laid on top of all of these details and this drama having to do with Jacob and his family. I think he wants us to see the bigger picture of the Bible as we read it and think about our own story. So think about it, for example, the way that Jacob is very much like Adam. So remember in the garden, the serpent deceived Eve and she she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her and he ate. Well, what we've seen happen is Rebecca, Jacob's mother, initiate a plan to deceive Isaac in Genesis 27. What we saw in Genesis 3 was the Lord speak judgment over Adam, and he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Well, that same verbal phrase is used in Genesis 27 when Rebecca tells Jacob, Jacob, listen to my voice. In Genesis 3, the woman takes the fruit. In Genesis 27, Jacob takes the, from the flock the goats and his mother prepares the food. Adam, when he's called out by God, doesn't answer truthfully when God says, where are you? What have you done? He's, he, he lies and makes excuses and Jacob repeatedly is lying to his father Isaac in chapter 27. God curses the serpent and speak words of judgment over the speaks words of judgment over the man and the woman in Genesis 3. Well, in Genesis 27, Rebekah tells Jacob, "Let the curse of God be upon me." After they sinned, God clothed Adam and Eve with garments of skin, and you remember, Rebekah clothed Jacob with animal skins to look like Esau. But God also blessed Adam and Eve with words of hope. That one day the serpent would only bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. His head would ultimately be crushed. Well, God also promises great blessing. The blessing of Abraham to Jacob, whose name is built on this term, this word for heel. After Genesis 3, Cain murders Abel. and, And after Jacob steals Esau's blessing, Esau wants to kill him. Because of their sin, Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, are driven out from the garden. And because of Jacob's sin, he is driven from the land of promise. Jacob is like a new Adam who is in exile. That brings us to Genesis chapter 31, where God is going to bring him home. That's the story of the Bible. We are all like Adam. We're all like Jacob. We have all sinned and been separated from God. But through Jesus Christ, he is calling us home, back to him, making us more and more like 
Jesus. The Bible is amazing. The gospel is amazing. God is amazing. And we're here to praise him this morning, to love him, to worship him together over this passage. I can't summarize the main point of this text any better than Paul did in Romans 11 when he said, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. All glory be to God for everything, every good thing, salvation, grace, life, redemption, opening up a way for us to know him. That's what this passage is teaching us. God does it all. And I just hope to lead you to that same conclusion this morning, that you would worship God. I'll give you three questions to think about as we go through our passage. If you want to write these down in advance, you can. Three brief questions. Number one, how do you see the world Number two, who is going to save you? And number three, who wins? How do you see the world? Who is going to save you? And finally, who wins? No matter where you are this morning, whatever your circumstances are, whatever the discouragement or challenge may be, if there's hope for Jacob and there's hope for this family, there's hope for you. There's hope for me. In Christ. So let's look at our first question. Number one, how do you see the world? Have you ever notice how two people can witness a similar event or participate in the same event and then describe it in two completely different ways and say, yeah, I saw it this way and, and I saw it this other way. I remember one of the first times that I went overseas, uh, I, I was going to uh, Nairobi. I flew into the airport and, and got out and was in a car and we were less than a mile away from the airport and we ran out of gas and it was dark and I, I didn't know the, the men in the car with me. I just met them and I was having a legit panic attack. It's like my first, one of the first times I've gone overseas and I was just thinking, okay, this is the end. I wonder if I have time to call my wife and tell her goodbye. And we're, and you know, and, and, and so the, the, the driver <clears throat> gets out of the car and he gets a gas can and he starts walking somewhere to go get gas and I'm just I'm sitting here and 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 I'm just thinking life is over and and uh, the guy that I'm with is like on his phone like texting his wife ask me what I want for dinner and uh, he's talking to the security guards that are walking around with machine guns which I'm not used to and and I'm just realizing we the conversation I'm gonna have with my wife later is gonna be a lot different than the conversation you're gonna have with your wife later about what happened after the airport situation. We experience the same thing in completely different ways. So what's gonna happen in our passage, the event is the prospering of Jacob through his family and through his flocks. That's what we've been looking at in the last few weeks in Genesis. And there's two different ways we're gonna see that viewed. First is the way Laban's sons are going to see it. So look at chapter 31, verse 1. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's and has gained all this wealth. So Jacob has, has basically taken it away. If you remember from chapter 30, Jacob had agreed to shepherd Laban's flock if he could have the striped and the spotted sheep and goats from the herd. And you remember Laban in turn removed those animals and left Jacob with only the solid colored ones. But much to the surprise of Laban and his sons, the minority spotted of the flock outnumbered the solid colored. Jacob's flocks flourished. Laban's were actually weakened. 
And so Laban's son's explanation for this is that Jacob is stealing their father's property. It's their perspective. He's taking it away. And Laban seems to agree. Uh, Verse 2, And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Up to this point in the story, uh, Laban has had the upper hand in every, every way. He's conned Jacob into serving him for 20 years. I mean, look at verse 38. These 20 years I have been with you. It's not a small amount of time. But now the tables are turning. But it's not because Jacob is a thief, although he has been known to take what doesn't belong to him. It's not because he's deceived Laban, which he certainly was. But what we're beginning to see at this point is what Jacob is beginning to see is what we've seen all along is that God is at work. And so Jacob is starting to understand now, his eyes are starting to open to God's provision and care for him apart from all of his scheming. And and that's what he's beginning to to see and the way he's going to see the world. But his job is now to convince his wives, Laban's daughters, of the same worldview. Will they see it the way he does or will they take their father and brother's side? Uh, So far, the, the odds have not been in Jacob's favor. So let's pick it up in verse 3 and see the way that Jacob interprets these events that have happened. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So God is again appearing to him, calling him back home. Verse 4, So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before. But the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock. God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me now rise go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred multiple times the lord will come to jacob and the other patriarchs and make these promises and it will be followed by this phrase and i will be with you and here he calls him to go back to the to the promised land the place where he called abraham and isaac to dwell in the land of his fathers God is bringing Jacob back from exile, bringing him home. And so Jacob calls Leah and Rachel out into the field so their conversation can be perhaps more private. And there he's going to give his perspective. He gives his perspective of what's happened. The way he sees the world, God has been with him. God has not permitted Laban to harm him, even though Laban has cheated him, he says, in every way possible. Much of it is likely not even recorded in in here, what what we see. Whatever God said would happen, would happen. It was God's idea. So Laban could change the arrangement however he wanted. He could say, now it's only the striped 
that you can have, and the flock would all bear striped. And he could say, now it's only the left-handed sheep with one eye that you can have, and those would be the ones that would be born. And verse 9 couldn't be clearer. Jacob says, it wasn't me. This is major progress for Jacob. It wasn't me. It wasn't my clever strategy with the different colored sticks or even the selective breeding. It was God that has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. Brother and sister, don't you want to think like this? Don't you want to see the world this way? When the interviewer comes up to you at the end of your life and says, how did you do it? How did you make it all the way to the end and all these wonderful things for you to simply say with full integrity, it was God. It was all God and God's grace in my life and actually mean it. This is a miracle for Jacob. This is not like Jacob. Now, he has not arrived by any means. Notice just throughout this passage as we go, he's going to refer to God as the God of his fathers. Not my God. That's going to come later. But what a difference. God is at work in him. And he gives all the glory, all the credit to God for protecting him. He tells about the dream the Lord gave him, speaking to him about what would happen, and it happened. He's been oppressed and cheated for 20 years. And God, in all that process, all that time, is working in his life. But God makes it clear, doesn't he, that he sees. He sees what Laban is doing, verse 12. He's not unaware. In fact, he's about to change everything. Now, the question is, would this be enough to convince his wives, Rachel and Leah? So, verse 14. Pick it up there. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. When we share the gospel with people, and we pray that they would have eyes to see and ears to hear. This is what we're praying for. For others to see the world through scriptural eyes. Eyes to see the folly of worldly schemes. The emptiness of sin. Rachel and Leah are beginning to see it. Even when it indicts their own father. When it points him out as evil and materialistic and, I mean, he, she's, they're referring back to the whole marriage situation and how they're basically sold like property, treated like foreigners, not family. And now because Laban has dishonored Jacob, he is experiencing the curse of God. And they don't want any part of that. They don't want any part of the inheritance of the world. They're ready to follow Jacob and Jacob's God. Jacob is actually leading his family for once. What a turnaround. All of it by God's grace. If you're here and you're a Christian, I just, I just want to remind you and point you back to the truth of verse 12 that God points out that he sees. He sees what is going on in your life. That thing that is, that is weighing you down. It may not be a one-to-one you know, comparison with what Jacob is going through, but that, that stress that tightens your chest when you think about it, God sees. God isn't absent because things are hard. Look at how hard things have been for Jacob. But he's there. He's there. In fact, he's calling him home. 
Christian, He's there with you. He's working those things in your life right now for your good, preparing you to go home, preparing you for heaven and more holiness. Trust Him. Take each day to remind yourself that God is on His throne. And so this disease or bad prognosis or relationship that's ending or financial difficulty or besetting sin that you hate, the depression or the pain will only last the night. Joy comes in the morning. We can view the world differently because we know the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, let me just ask you, how do you see the world? How do you interpret all of the things that are happening in your own life? If you don't know this God, what are you living for? Is it mainly stuff? Is it mainly things that you're trying to accumulate that you would be secure and happy? I just want to tell you from God's word, there is so much more that you're made for. You are headed for a dead end. You will never find what you're looking for in the things of this world because you are made to know and worship God, the one who made the world, the one who made you. But like Jacob, your ability to know and worship God is broken by sin. And so you and I don't naturally thank God and and praise Him for what He's done. We naturally see the world the way Laban's sons do here. We're blind and we're deaf to God. Even though He has made us and given us life, even now, we need Him to open our eyes. We need Him to open our hearts to see Him, to come to Him. And that leads me to the second question I want to ask you this morning. Who is going to save you? Who is going to save you? The Bible does not present us as the heroes of the big story of life. Actually, the Bible teaches that we are in desperate need of saving. Adam and Eve needed saving. Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob need saving. Jacob has been enslaved by his own family member for two decades. But God is bringing him out of slavery, calling him home. Friend, what about you? The Bible teaches that all of us, all of us humans, naturally, at birth, are slaves. Not to an evil uncle, but to sin. Jesus says in John 8, Truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Paul said in Romans 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The big story of the Bible pictures a gracious God delivering his people from slavery and calling them home, calling them to himself through Christ. That is ultimately what's happening with Jacob. Look down at verse 17. Chapter 31, verse 17. So God so Jacob rather arose and set his sons and his wives on camels, and he drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, all the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he had intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country 
of Gilead. So, lot there. Jacob is escaping. He is fleeing, finally, the slavery with his family, with all of his possessions, and he's headed to the land of promise. One author summarized the, the promises made in the Abrahamic covenant with three Ps, people, possessions, and a place. And we've been using the, the kind of the three uh, words of land, seed, and blessing. Okay, but, but either way, we see Jacob is, is experiencing the promises made to Abraham. He's following in those footsteps. He's leaving for the place that God promised with a great number, we see, of possessions and now a people of his own. And the timing seems to have been perfect. Laban is out to shear his sheep. And one author mentions that sheep shearing is an extended process done in, in the spring and it would take a large crew of people to go and to shear the sheep. One source said it might take 400 men working for three days to get this done. Some would describe even longer periods. And so this is a prime time for him to leave and apparently for Rachel to steal her father's household gods. And if that sounds a little bit funny to you, I do think Moses would intend it to be a little bit funny. In some ways, he's going to make fun of these gods. And it's going to get even funnier. These gods are likely small figures or images that would have been used for worship or divination, passed down likely through the family, through generations, through Laban's family, very valuable. Perhaps one of the reasons that you would keep household gods around is to protect your family from theft. And so it's a little bit ironic that the gods are stolen They can't even protect themselves from being stolen. They're utterly useless and impotent. But, you know, we're asking the question to ourselves, why does Rachel need these? Why does she take them? And there's several possibilities. One possibility is is that uh, possession of the household gods would be like a, a right that you would have, a physical kind of receipt of being a part of the family that you would be able to, to, to gain an inheritance. So she could be thinking about that. She could also just be trying to get back at her father, because he's left her nothing, taken everything from her. So she wants to get back at him and take away what she knows are, are precious to him. Or she could want them for herself. She could still be dealing with her own pagan roots and, and wondering how could I go away apart from these household gods, this worship divination practice. It's hard to, to know exactly what she's thinking, but we know that she takes them. And we also know there is a gaping difference between Laban's gods and Jacob's god. That's something Moses is making very clear to us. These man-made idols and what Isaiah says of God in chapter 46, remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Man-made gods don't do that. So Rachel steals Laban's gods, and, and Jacob steals Laban's heart. That's literally the, the interpretation of tricked. That word tricked can mean in verse 20, the stealing away of his heart. So the tables have completely now turned. But Laban is not going to take this lying down. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. And so let's pick it up in verse 22. 
When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban, the Aramean, in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. This shouldn't surprise us. We've seen this again and again and again through Genesis. God protected Abraham. Remember when he afflicted Pharaoh with great plagues in chapter 12? Uh, he came to Abimelech in a dream saying, You're a dead man if you touch Sarah. Uh, God has just been about protecting the patriarchs in this way. He's going to continue to do it. Now he's promising, or he has promised Jacob that he would keep him and, and take him back to the land in chapter 28. God keeps his promises again. And so he warns Laban in a dream. And I just think it's, it's interesting that, the, that we, we find that, that God is giving him this, this, this warning not to say anything to, to, to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban's just about to catch up with Jacob and say some stuff to him. Verse 25, and Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched his tents in the country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why do you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me that, that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs with tambourine and lyre? And why do you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be he says it, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? I love the way that that ends. It's just, it just makes me laugh every time I read it. Now, as we know, as we learned about Laban, nobody thinks that Laban is going to send away his daughters with this celebration if Jacob would have just asked nicely. I mean, I heard several people laughing just reading that. We know he's not going to send them away with myrrh and songs and, and tambourine and lyre. I mean, come on. He feels he has the power to harm Jacob, which maybe legally he does, which we're about to, to find out. But just catch the, the irony. For someone with so much power, he was arrested by Jacob's God on the way you know, he's lost his gods already on the way not to say a word to Jacob. And of course, he, he's still doing it. But it's like he's saying, and another thing, uh, why did you steal my gods? And it's clear Jacob has no idea what he's talking about. He doesn't know that the gods have been stolen. Pick it up in verse 31. Jacob answered and said to Laban, because I was afraid, that's why I left, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have said that is yours. Point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. Oops. Jacob admits he has his strong motivation to leave was fear. Fear of losing his wives his family to Laban, but we know that's mixed with faith, a motivation to obey God. And so, again, Jacob is in process, just like you and me. Uh, I think he's, 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 he's heading in a good direction. God's working in his life. Um, but then he claims that anyone who's stolen these, these gods should die. They deserve to die. And it just kind of makes me, reminds me of that conversation with David and Nathan. Well, who is this person that has done this terrible thing? 
And so we do see that there's some communication still issues between Jacob and his wife. He doesn't know that that she has actually taken the gods. And he's just pronounced a death sentence on her her life. And so the tension in the narrative is building because we're we're all wondering, well, what's going to happen to Rachel now? And so Laban is going to begin to search the tents for these stolen gods, and we're just going to say, well, what's going to happen when she gets to, he gets to Rachel's tent? Let's find out. Verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Don't you know that Moses loved writing this? Not only were Laban's gods so inept that they couldn't protect themselves now, they're being ceremonially defiled by Rachel. Yeah, that's that's what's happening here. Whether or not Rachel means to to do this, or, or we have this picture that the gods are, again, worthless, embarrassingly helpless and defeated. And so, friends, this is the lesson that we should take from this. The gods of this world will not save you. They are no gods at all. What people say about you, your net worth, your looks, your reputation, your financial security, these are as eternally valuable to you as a sanitary napkin. Filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. We have all become like those who who are unclean and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Friends, don't trust in anything other than Christ to save you. You can tell in the exchange between Jacob and Laban that follows, there is some self-righteousness still bubbling up on both ends, some hope remaining kind of in their own hearts. Uh, Pick it up in verse 36. Then Laban became, I'm sorry, then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that we may decide between the, us two. These 20 years, and he's just going to unload now. I mean, it's been pent up. 20 years. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I didn't bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. For from my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day, the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Well, you know that felt good, just to get that off his chest. (laughs) But if you notice, Jacob is continuing to give credit where credit is due. 
Glory to where glory is due to God. I'm not so sure about these questions. Where is my offense? What is my sin? Because we could list a few. Jacob is not sinless. He has, in fact, deceived Laban. He has, in fact, stolen the household gods, even though it wasn't himself stolen. His wife has them in her possession. So technically, he's guilty. Let's just be careful not to assert that we are sinless. Not to, not to think that somehow we are completely innocent. We're not. That doesn't take away the reality of pain that's been caused by us, to us, by others. But we just want to see ourselves with a biblical, biblical anthropology, the way the Bible sees us. And know that we're not the best judge of ourselves. We want to let the Word of God shine its light on us. And that actually produces a, a wonderful, grateful humility that sees logs in our own eye before going out and hunting for specks in others. But, but Laban, Laban suffers from the same delusion. He tries to play the part of the loving father who wanted to have this wonderful celebration, who now has been robbed by his precious, from his precious daughters. And he may genuinely think of himself that way. Friends, sin makes us illogical. Um, look at the way he, he concludes here in verse 43. Then Laban answer, answers, and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can you do this day for these my daughters? What can I do for these my daughters or their children whom they have borne? Proverbs 16.2 says, all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Friend, let me just encourage you not to trust your own self-evaluation. Trust Jesus. We are sick and broken by sin, and we need a Savior. Jesus is that Savior. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jacob is like a picture, a small kind of photo negative of what, what we would see in the life of Jesus Christ. Satan tempted Jesus with similar words that Laban says here when he comes to him and says, all the kingdoms of the earth are mine and they can be yours too if you would just worship me. That is delusional. Abraham Kuyper was right when he said, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is the Lord of all, does not exclaim, mine. It is not yours, Satan. It is not yours, Laban. It is not mine. Christ is king. And Christ died an atoning death on the cross in our place, and he rose from the grave, winning a victory over sin and death forever for us. Friend, who is going to save you? Only Jesus can save you. Turn from your sins and put your trust in him. Don't, don't try harder. Don't turn over a new leaf. Don't set a New Year's resolution. Don't need to read self-help books or look to hope in what the culture says is right. You need new life. You need to be born again. By Christ. Believe on Jesus. Turn away from the idols of the world. I'd love to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus. Just find me after the service. I'd love to talk to you more about that. Finally, briefly, uh, we don't want to leave without knowing today the answer to this last question, who wins? Who wins? All the, the odds are in Laban's favor. He has the numbers. He's angry but he is no match for the living God. God is in the business of subduing his enemies and the enemies of his people. 
And Laban is going to ask here for a non-aggression treaty, a covenant with Jacob. You see it there in verse 44. Come, now let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be, and let it be a witness between you and me. Now, Jacob doesn't have to make this treaty. He's, he's got the complete upper hand now, but he agrees. And in effect, what he's doing is formally separating from Laban now into his own clan, into his own people. And this is the way that, that it unfolds. Look, at, Pick it up in verse 46. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap. And they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jegar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Again, Laban is coming off as I'm very concerned about these daughters. Verse 51, then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. I think it's interesting that Laban, in this covenant treaty, kind of throws in his own, his own gods, the gods of Nahor, uh, but Jacob only swears by the awesome one or the fear of Isaac. Uh, soon Jacob is going to find that his father's God is his God too. Jacob is rescued, uh, not because he's deserving, but because God loves him and is committed to his promises. Laban is subdued, and, and now there's this formal protection, a boundary marker between the two peoples that shall not be crossed for evil intent. And so we see that Laban's greed did not pay off. He, he bought into the gods of materialism and wealth, and they robbed his soul. God always wins. Who would want to be found opposing God? Jacob is still learning, but God is still pursuing him by grace. And we're going to see that in the next chapter. And the sooner we learn to trust God's ways, God's plans, God's word, God's power, God's victory over sin and death, the better. That God wins. Friends, look to the empty tomb. God wins. This is just built into the the big story of Scripture because the Bible is God's Word and it is amazing. And so we saw the connections between Jacob earlier and Adam. I want you to think as we close a little bit about the connections between this rescue and the Exodus. When Jacob initially comes to Laban, he is welcomed really warmly in chapter 29. We're going to see later when Jacob goes to Egypt in chapter 47, Pharaoh is going to welcome him very warmly with respect. But just as Laban's, uh, Laban is subjects Jacob to slavery, which we've seen, Pharaoh, eventually another Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph, is going to subject the people of Israel to harsh slavery. 
Jacob was fruitful and multiplied, as we've seen in his exile. The people of Israel increased abundantly in Egypt and spread abroad. Laban tried to stop the fruitfulness of Jacob by taking away his wages. Pharaoh set out to kill Israelite baby boys to keep them in check. In both places, God shows up and God identifies himself, the God of Bethel, or I am the God of your father, Exodus 3, as as he's talking to Moses. In both places, we see that God sees their affliction and promises to take them out of slavery and deliver them to the promised land. In both places, the Hebrews ask to be released and they end up plundering their enemies. We see how the gods of of Laban are humiliated. Well, that's what's happening in those plagues, isn't it, in Egypt. The gods of the Egyptians are being humiliated. Laban and Pharaoh are going to pursue Israel as they try to flee. They're going to try to bring them back or even worse. They catch up with them, both Laban and Pharaoh. And in both cases, God intervenes. He he comes and warns Laban in a dream, what have you seen? And then he throws Pharaoh and his armies into the Red Sea. Friends, this is the, the message of the Bible, the big picture, the, 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 the kind of the backbone that's showing us this, this exodus out of sin, that God's delivering a people for himself out of slavery to sin to bring them home. And he wants to do that through Jesus, who's leading a new exodus to a new Jerusalem by bringing new life to all those who would repent and put their trust in him because he is the Passover lamb. He's the greater Jacob, the greater Moses, our great deliverer. This is the gospel, and it changes the way that we see the world because we know we need saving and we know who saves us, and we know who wins. We know that God is taking us home. Do you know that? Let's pray together. Lord, we know that There are big theological realities before us. But all of these things, Lord, they play out in the context of family relationships. And so we're reminded this morning that we don't want to just be aware of the big picture, but we want to see how that's working itself out in the everyday life that we experience as a church in our own families. We pray that we would be those that that love you and and are changed by the gospel and that shows up in our own, the four walls of our own home and in the, the relationships that we have with other members of this church, with our husband or with our wife and our children. Lord, we pray we would be changed to that level and that we wouldn't just be, have a head knowledge of these things. And so we, we ask that you would work these things deep into our hearts and they might come out in our lives. Lord, we pray that you would glorify yourself in us and that as we celebrate getting to be your people now, as we come to the Lord's table in just a moment, Lord, remind us of what you've done. Give us thankful hearts. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.